In Matthew 15, it begins this way again with the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees and scribes uh, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, Why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God, uh, um, for God commands, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is and given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Doctrines or dogma. Church dogma as the commandments of men. Verse 10 says this, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still so still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes through the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual morality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Then Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And listen to Jesus' response. But he would not answer her a word. And the disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Apparently they're a little annoyed. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That was not a seeker-sensitive message. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered her, I love this answer. O woman, great is your faith. 
almost can just sense the love of God in that statement. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I love the way that story ends. I love that phrase where he says, and even just reading it again this morning, oh woman, great is your faith. It's, it's just so beautiful because it's hinting of the fact that this was all just a test. Jesus isn't like that. But he is, but he's not. He meant what he said. Um, but he didn't want evidently the conversation to end with her just telling her off. Even though, of course, as we just read with the Pharisees, Jesus is quite capable of telling people off. Uh, and sometimes when he does, the conversation ends. And other times when he does, the conversation doesn't end. It continues further. Um, who, so who is this Jesus Christ? We have a man, our Lord Jesus Christ, um, saying something that is, on the face of it, pretty offensive. Almost incredibly offensive to call someone um, a dog. Uh, if I were to say something like, uh, what's up, dog? Uh, if anyone else were to say that except me, it would be pretty cool. Um, in our culture, that's not necessarily a bad thing to say. But in that culture, it was very bad to say. Uh, and you'd imagine it even still carries in our culture today to call someone a dog. Not good. Who is Jesus? Why is he saying this? Um, he does not appear the same way to everyone. Even though he is the same unchanging God, he's the Lord of glory. But some perceive Jesus Christ without faith. And some, even with a little bit of faith, have enough. And Jesus said, you don't need much. Even this littlest mustard seed, a little bit of faith to behold him. And he will begin to reveal himself to you as the Lord of glory. This woman was told that she had, and only a few people in all scripture told this, Great faith. Great faith. In the early mornings um, of most times of the year, if you would look uh, to the eastern morning sky, um, you see a very bright star, and throughout history it's been called the morning star. The reason it's called the morning star is because out of all the other stars, it, it illumines itself uh, brighter than the rest. So it's the first one uh, to peek out uh, in the morning uh, when the sun is setting or going away. Rather than when the sun's coming up, it's the last one to, 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 to not be extinguished by the glory of the sun, the morning star. But also, that same day, if you were to actually pay attention to the stars, which of course we really don't do anymore, except for a hobby. If you were to actually pay attention to the stars, ancient people had another name called the evening star. That when all the other stars were still hiding from the glory of the sun, late day during the sunset and the western evening star begins to appear uh, with the brightness and the boldness the braveness of all the other stars to show up first. Last one to leave, first one to show up. The morning star and the evening star. 
And it seems as though it's this one great star that takes back all the dominion left from uh, the sun as he leaves. At least that's how it appears. What's commonly understood is that it was discovered later on through a Greek philosopher, Pythagoras, and you can thank him for middle school math, but he also managed to plot the way this star appeared. And he found out after he plotted its trajectory that it was the same star, that the morning star and the evening star were actually the same thing. And they weren't even actually a star. It was the planet Venus. Now see, that's something what's going on here as we read through the Gospels. Jesus is Jesus. He is the Lord of glory. And he will not be changed or moved or altered by any of us. But what we find by these appearances of him in various contexts, with various people, that he's been given so many different names. Some think he is a king that should rule over Rome and make a rebellion. Some think he's a heretic. The Pharisees, well, they actually just don't like him very much. But then for this woman, he's something entirely different. It's just like that. Plotting the lines as the, the, the reason Matthew has made the gospel this way is what he's trying to do is almost what Pythagoras did with the star. is He's plotting the course of Jesus' life so that you can see the beginning from the end. So that you do not fall into the trick of only seeing one part of Jesus. Only seeing him in the day. We're only seeing him in the night. You're seeing him for all of who he is and you're realizing that when you put all the pictures together, when you read the whole story of the gospel, you find out that this man is in fact the Lord of glory. This is God our Savior. We have the privilege of following behind all the people he talks to and listening in and learning from them. This is the complete narrative of Matthew. The connections we've seen through the sermon series is how Jesus began first at home. He was in Nazareth. And we're told particularly that he didn't do any miracles there because they had no faith. And then we go over to Peter, who happens to be walking on water with Jesus, and he slips into fear. And he sees the wind, and he begins to sink into the water. And that's pretty good. I mean, I've never walked on water, so I shouldn't be too quick to judge poor Peter. But Jesus said to him, oh, you have little faith. He had faith. It was little. And now we have a woman, a Canaanite woman coming to Jesus. And she takes on an insult. And Jesus said to her something greater than he ever even said to Peter who walked on the water. Oh woman, your faith is great. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? 
Sometimes he's shrouded in secrecy like the evening star. The Pharisees, they're not going to see it. But sometimes he's surrounded by light and he becomes clear. His true identity is revealed like the morning star that he is. Listen to this. Psalm 18. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself torturous. Was Jesus torturing the Pharisees? Calling them hypocrites? Offending them? Wasn't he doing this with the woman? But it changes. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With those who are pure, you show yourself as being pure. With the crooked, you show yourself as being torturous. The psalm goes on to say, For you save a humble people. By, but the haughty eyes you will bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. You see how Jesus isn't and can never be a science project. You can't go out and just prove, oh, I'll prove to you Jesus, Lord. He will manifest himself to different people, different ways, based on what he wants to do and based on what they are deserving or asking of. All of us deserve for him to show himself in darkness. He, doesn't, he has to show us anything. He doesn't have to reveal himself one bit. We all, by nature, are his enemies, Ephesians says. And so those who are dark, he will manifest himself as darkness. Those who are crooked, he will manifest himself as crooked. He will not give clear sight. And he doesn't have to. He's not obligated to. That's the nature of grace. If God were to cut himself off from all of us now, he would do us no wrong. So when people were saying, well, you worship Jesus and you find him to be the Lord, I don't see that. Yes. Well, I, I didn't go, I studied history and I, I looked into the Petri dishes and I, I did all the scientific investigations to try to make a sense of who Jesus is. It doesn't work that way. You can find all these arguments and the historicity of Jesus Christ. Of course, if there was anything historically valid, it is Jesus Christ. Absolutely remarkable. But the point is, what do you want Jesus to do? Make more historical proofs to your wicked heart. Do you want him to make two sons instead of one? So that when you look to the heavens, you're truly amazed for the first time in your life. The, the, the nature of the problem is that when we are internally wicked, we cannot help but see darkness. And if he shows us his whole glory, then we die in his holiness. And so he shouted his glory in his flesh, came in to live for us, to be with us, and to save us. The theme of all of this is that God clearly we find this same thing as how God manifests himself differently to different people. God clearly is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. James 4.6 But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud 
But he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Humble yourself to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. Promises. He will draw near to you. If you humble yourself before him and go to him, his disposition towards you and your disposition to him alters the relationship. He will begin to show himself to you in greater and greater ways. He gives grace, unmerited favor through this transaction, which is by humble faith, humility. Particularly, James here is citing this proverb in Proverbs 3.34. He mocks the mocker and he gives grace to the humble. You see that? Proverbs 3.34. If you mock God, he will mock you. Psalm 2, he literally laughs at people who rebel, rebel against him. He thinks it's funny. There's nothing you can do. Your whole life is upon his hand. How could you rebel against God? That's the, there's, no, there's not a lot of jokes in the Bible. Did you ever notice with Jesus, there's not many? Because, you know, parchment's pretty expensive back then and every line matters, so the jokes get cut out. I'd imagine, I'd have to assume, Jesus had a sense of humor because he was a man. And I'm sure he was a ple pleasure to be around because he's better than us. So I'm sure he was funny. But for the sake of the matter is, there's not many jokes in the Bible because books were expensive back then and the most important information had to come first. But in Psalm 2, there is a joke. Everyone's trying to rebel against God. And the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. Who? How? By what way could you ever? Psalm 3 says this then. Proverbs 3 says this. He mocks the mocker. But if you would just soften your heart, where you would just lower yourself and humble yourself, he'll open up your brain. He'll reveal himself to you. He gives grace to the humble. He's the same self-God that does not change. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This explains everything we see in the Gospels. He offended the Jewish papacy. They pitted the word of God against their human tradition, which is an extremely arrogant thing to do. Because they had their robes, they had their schools in Jerusalem, they had their tradition, they had their books, they thought that their traditions could begin to rival Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And because they're so arrogant to think that, God opposed them. Jesus just went up and offended them right to their face. And it's not as though that's incongruent with God's love, you see. The only thing God could do is break you of your pride. And if it, your pride isn't broken, then you have not him and you have nothing. So even his harsh words, you see, have to be interpreted in the context of his absolute good love. That even with the Pharisees, he's only giving them the best thing they could have, a good, healthy, humble pie. But they won't eat it. Their human traditions they thought were so wonderful. And he calls them hypocrites and blind guides. But Jesus leans into the scriptures and says, do not. Human tradition, and again, as Reformed Christians, we love church tradition. We love church history. But when those things contradict with scripture, scripture wins. Why? Because uh, that's how Jesus did it. And if we need more of an answer for that, I can't give you one. There is no better answer. Jesus, sola scriptura. 
If any spiritual authority in this world, see, there's a certain type of pride to spirituality. It even gets down to like eating clean and organic and all these things almost becomes a subcult of its own. That like, I do this in my life. That's good, praise God. But there's a human tendency to get self-righteous about the things we do, you see. And it, 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 get, it gets to a, a pinnacle in the religious world. There's, there's a particular pride to all of this. The, the, the ceremony, the formality, the, the tradition, the austere, the, the exalted thing. Where, and and, and it's, it's either in a high church tradition or even a broad evangelical tradition where the pastor is like a cult leader and it's all about him and he just talks about himself instead of the Bible. Like, see, the, that's the whole thing Jesus is saying. It's all this arrogance. It's any spiritual leader who is guiding you away from the word of God and any spiritual leader who's drawing attention to himself. Jesus says, he is a blind guide. Do not follow him. For you will both fall into a pit. It is the word of God by the spirit exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. There need be nothing else. The offense and the pride that the Pharisees had from him. And the response was, do you not know that this offended the Pharisees? It's, it's the fact of saying, yeah, they knew it offended the Pharisees. Anyone would know that that was an offensive thing for him to say. It was more or less maybe the disciples saying, do you know these are the guys we don't want to be our enemies? Like they're the ones with a lot of particular influence in our community. And we find right after he offends the Pharisees is this phrase, is that he withdrew. Every time he gets in a hostile situation, Jesus is withdrawing. When John the Baptist was imprisoned, he withdrew. When John the Baptist was beheaded, he withdrew. And then he offended the Pharisees, and he decided to get out of town. And that's what he did. And that's how he found this woman. He withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is that Gentile region. No Jewish region at all. In the beginning of the gospel in Matthew 4, it says, In the land of Zebulun and of Tali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, people there dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. The morning star. This is part of his ministry. Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus is going into Tyre and Sidon. There are no Jews there. He's going to meet a woman who's called a Canaanite woman, which no one referred to themselves as Canaanite women. Canaanite men or women at this time. It's an old phrase used from the Old Testament. But all the people in that region that were opposed to God, that had to actually be exterminated or brought under God's divine wrath, they were called Canaanites. And here's this woman. A Canaanite woman. It's bringing in all of this context to know this is a woman that's opposed to God. She comes from a whole culture opposed to God. She has none of the promises or, or covenants that Israel has. She is a Canaanite woman. But she, you see, is coming to the Lord Jesus. Have mercy on me. No Pharisee would say it. Have mercy upon me, son of David. She's not from Judah. David was never her king. But she knows about Jesus. Have mercy upon me, son of David. 
She says, my daughter, she's severely uh, uh, oppressed by a demon. Everything in this story with this Canaanite woman is dirtiness. It's filthy. Once we see all this line together, we'll have to be pressed to the fact to understand our relationship to the Lord. That we are incredibly dirty. And I like the phrase that the Lord uses because it's a moral filthiness that we cannot see. And it's a moral corruption that is in and of all of us that we do not know it because everyone has it. But if for a moment we were from Zion, if for a moment we knew what it was like to walk on streets of gold in perfect righteousness, we would be repulsed with ourselves. We would be repulsed with this world. It would be the highest stench of wretched filth that would offend us. So it's, it's so hard to know what it must have been like for Christ to walk in Galilee. But he gave us wonderful, wonderful lesson through all the Old Testament. It has to do with all the cleanliness the Bible talks about. See, this woman is dirty like you and me, our lives. She's dirty in three distinct ways, at least. She's dirty with a demon. She's dirty in a dirty district. And she's dirty because of all of her distance. Both of those match perfectly. I just happened to get them all start with letter D. Um, think of this. In the scriptures, demons are called unclean spirits. Here's this woman whose daughter is oppressed by an unclean spirit. At one point in time, Jesus says, when a spirit, a demonic spirit, leaves a person, that person is all clean and put together so that everything is empty and swept and put in order. Their person, their life, their, their identity is like a house that has been reordered and been clean. And unless it be reconstituted by uh, being possessed by uh, the presence of God, Jesus warns that what happens is these unclean spirits will return back and even make their life more dirty, more disheveled, more messed up. These are what the Bible calls unclean spirits. And this is attached to this woman, her family. She's in a dirty district. That is to say, Jesus has left Galilee of the region of the Jews. He has went into Tyre and Sidon in the districts of the Gentiles. The districts of uh, the dogs which was a phrase for Jewish people that spoke of Gentiles. Now see, it's true in our culture, that would be not making much sense. We love dogs, and we should, because they're awesome. Uh, in, in, in San Francisco, there was the, um, uh, the census they had, if you heard in the news uh, more recently, is that there's more dogs in San Francisco uh, than children. And that's actually true. There was a census in 2016 where uh, in San Francisco there was um, uh, 115,000 children in the city. And, uh, and right now there's probably around 120 to 150,000 dogs. 
So we are, we are a country that loves domesticated, cute little fluffy animals. So that's great. The offense, the offense is, in the ancient world, dogs were the waste management of the old cities. They traveled in packs. They were mangy. They were not pets. And they were not bred to be a forever puppy. There were no corgis. They were a little bit different than wolves, and they ate all the garbage. They ate everything. They were dirty. They were unkept. They had diseases. Do you see all that imagery there? Do you see how that all ties in to what Jesus is actually, what, like the offense, that's pressing on the offense that what Jesus has actually said to her, what he actually has implied upon her life. She's filthy. Can you hear that word from the Lord to you? And the dirtiness of all this has to do uh, with the distance. Notice Jesus is actually not going into all these Gentile cities. He's staying out in the wilderness. We're told he's in the district of Tyre and Sidon. This woman has come out to him. He wasn't seeking her. The whole concept of Jewish people not being able to enter into Gentile houses is because they had a high likelihood of uh, becoming unclean by touching all the ceremonial unclean things. The Jewish law, throughout the Old Testament, there is ceremonial cleanliness. That if you were to be touching anything associated with death or unclean food, you yourself would be contaminated in a ceremonial way, not in a moral way. You just wouldn't be able to go to the temple and worship the way you should. So what that did is it created a high, the sinful heart produced that good law to be a sinful prejudice that even, even Jewish people wouldn't even go near Gentiles, wouldn't even go near their house, wouldn't even have fellowship with them at all. And here is Jesus walking throughout all the districts of this Gentile dirty district and some woman comes out to meet him in the field. And you have to imagine the men. They're keeping their distance. The disciples are saying, keep her away from us. You have to imagine all the sinfulness of human racism in all this. Because that's present. True cleanliness. True cleanliness, Jesus, in this context is saying this. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's at this point he has to say this. Because he's going to go heal a Gentile woman. But what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And out of the heart are all these things, evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus sets the whole table to say, as I am telling you, everything is the matter of the heart. That's why he looks different to different people. That's why to the pure, he seems pure. But to the impure, all things are impure, like Paul says in Titus. He speaks to this woman and tests her for this very fact to go straight to her heart. She comes to him and he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. She knelt down before him. Lord, help me. Lord, it is not right for me to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. That's the moment you walk away. 
That's the moment you realize Jesus isn't Lord. He's not your Savior. You can't follow this religion. You can't understand this gospel. But see, that is the moment that you actually understand the gospel. That's the moment that it all makes sense because she presses another layer deeper, goes another level in humility and says, yes, Lord, you're right. I am filthy. I am a filthy dog. Now put me in your house. I want to eat at your feet, at your table. I want to be a San Francisco dog. I don't want to be an ancient Jerusalem dog. I want you to take me home. I want you to feed me. I want you to clean me. But the only way you want that is you have to hear the sharpness of the gospel is that you are desperately wicked and dirty and unclean. Because only there can the glories of Jesus Christ first begin to appropriately be appreciated. The Pharisees, they could never hear that. They think they're only one foot away from walking right into the kingdom with their head held high. They have no idea of who they are because they're so proud in their ceremony, so proud in how they eat, so proud in how they have Torah, so proud in how they know all these religious things, even so much so that they think they can rival the very words of God. They have no ability to see Jesus. They are so full. Their eyes are so flooded with pride and self-worth. The gospel comes to this woman because when he says that to her, all he says is, you're right. That's the truth. Now please take me and help me. She is humble. Something on the inside of her is different. She's dirty with demons. She's dirty like a dog. She's dirty in a dirty district. But inside, she's beautiful. She receives one of the greatest praises that no one else in all the other Gospels have ever received. Great is your faith. There's nothing better, Jesus. Once you realize what faith means for Jesus, faith is everything for Jesus. We're not God. We don't know anything. Therefore, we don't know anything absolutely. Everything we ever know is after going to be predicated on some type of faith. Outside of faith is omniscience, and we don't have that. So when he says to her, your faith is great, he could barely say anything better to a person, a finite creature like her. Jesus explains all this. He explains it all beautifully when he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not. All this idea of eating clean and all this stuff of the Jewish law, Jesus is saying, I'm not undoing it. I'm fulfilling it. It was all about the heart from the beginning. Even down to Deuteronomy 12, there was a law particularly in which they were allowed to eat clean and unclean food depending on their location in Israel. Deuteronomy 12, 21, 22, uh, gazelle or deer, these things that were unclean, you can eat them. You're just ceremonially unclean. You can't go to the temple for a while. Jesus, all he's doing is taking what truly was the word of God, the Torah, which he happened to write, and he's saying, you Pharisees have twisted this all up, and you've messed it all up and turned it into this racist thing that is your own self-spiritual pride. 
And he flips it around so much so that Matthew in his gospel has to put the pharisaical, religious, clean, religious, nice, polished on the outside pride next to this woman. And she's humbled and then exalted. And in their proudness, they are humbled. He will, he will exalt the humble. Humble the proud. That's the gospel. That's the dynamics. And so, all this to say, what are we to learn? You and me, and I need to hear this. I'm going to say this. Please hear it a different way. You can draw near to God. You can draw near to God. You could also drive a car and go on Facebook. And you can also draw near to God. You see, like out of all the possibilities you have at your fingertips, you could do that. That's amazing. And see, this is the thing I struggle with. And I know it's not just me. Without humility, you don't realize what that statement means. Because you're like, of course I can draw near to God. And I can do anything because I'm pretty awesome. But the thing is, you're not. But we're told so much that we're so good that when we actually hear the goodness of the good news of the gospel, it's like, yes, I understand. And I can also go on Facebook and drive a car. No, it's better than that. There's nothing better you could ever have presented to you. The problem is we don't see that we are dogs. We don't see in true reality that we have no business, no business at all approaching the Lord. Humility is the ability to see that great privilege and draw near. Because, now, this is the the realities of it. There is no um, obvious uh, need for response but I will function on the assumption that when you, as a follower of Christ, know what it's like to say, I should, in the morning perhaps, when I begin the day, set my mind upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and what I will do is I will get out of my bed, and I will fall on my face, and I will seek Jesus Christ, and I will sense the awesomeness of his glory and his power and his majesty, and he will fill me, and I will walk with the Lord the rest of the day, and I will speak words as though I speak the words of God. I will speak with wisdom and love, and I will be as the most closest type of Jesus walker analog on this earth that I could ever be. The reality is, you're going to want to get a bowl of Cheerios tomorrow morning when you wake up. And you're going to do your normal thing. Because you know, sometimes when you approach the Lord, that sense of His glorious, the Lord of glory's presence upon you in fellowship with Him is not to be had. That you don't necessarily feel different or feel closer All of that to say, you can draw near to God. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I hope 
that you would remember this woman. That there was a place in which she lowered herself to the point of being spoken to as a dog. If you reorient yourself every morning that way, there's grace to come. I, I open my Bible and I try to read and sometimes I pray and I feel like nothing's happening. I just don't get anything. Like I'm not connecting. It's like, that's okay. That's normal. Humble yourself. Like reorient. Don't look at it as a practice. Don't look at it as just a discipline you do. Understand that you are always in the presence of God and you never read the Bible as a book study. You read the Bible in the presence of God and in that presence, Humble yourself. Go low immediately. We in the service confess our sins. Go deep. Bring yourself down low. Consider this woman once again that she was called a dog. And you take that on and let the Lord meet you in that humility because he is opposed to the proud. Gives grace to the humble. That's the promise. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will lift you up. This could change your whole entire devotional life. Your time with the Lord could be much different we remember that it's not as though we're trying to push buttons and work a calculator. You are in a relationship with the one who created all of our personalities. How much more should it not be understood is that our relationship with him is with a real person. So humble yourself in his presence. He will lift you up. So you can draw near to God. You can get to know him more. And when you understand that you really are just a dog. Then you can actually really appreciate that invitation for what it is. I'll say it this way. In closing. In the temple, it would have been inconceivable for a dog to get in there. I mean the temple in Jerusalem, the one that they were told to make. It was a beautiful structure. It had a massive wall, colonnade all around. Everything in it was gold and silver. In the holy place, there was a table covered in gold, 12 loaves of bread on it. Not even any Jewish person could get in there. Only a priest, anointed, holy, with all the accoutrements of ceremony and religion, communicating nothing more than, you don't get to go in there. Years. Years, every Jewish person is taught, this is how it works. You're never going to see that place. Any normal, random person in the nation of Israel, I promise you, son, you'll never see the holy place, let alone the holy of holy place, which the high priest only got to go in once a year. You're not even going to get near that golden bread. You're just going to hear about it, and the priest is going to tell you about it, because they're going to go in there, and they're going to tell you it's still there. There is no way a dog could get in there. I mean, literally a dog. 
in the Old Testament temple. It was the most defiling thing to the whole structure of the temple. Do you see why Jesus gave us all those commandments in the Old Testament? So that we as moderns, post his resurrection, can only begin to understand what he has done for you. That was just a building of stone. How could we, scrappy, sinful dogs, filthy? You see, there's an undomesticated dog breath about us. We're offensive to him. It's what comes out, the lust of the heart, deceit, slander, all those things he said, just breathes like a fence upon him. How would you let a dog share your plate at dinner? One from the street you don't even know. Now, you're going to believe the gospel? You're going to believe that you're going to enter into the holy place of God and walk right up there and eat with the Lord Jesus Christ? There is a great chasm between us and him. We would be much better with the scraps of dogs. You see, there's a holiness, a glorious holiness to him that we are so different from. And when that starts to understand and take shape in your soul, then you can say, my Lord, I can draw near to you, but Lord, who am I? Oh, when, when the Lord Jesus finds someone that has that kind of heart, miracles, signs, wonders, he'll show them all sorts of stuff. He'll start showing them, oh, I'm the Lord of glory. I will do everything for you. You approach the Lord with that kind of mentality, these scriptures might just drip glittery gold for you every day. He might show you things that you've never seen before. It's all about being humble. It's opposed to the proud. Draw near to God in humility. He'll draw near to you. We will eat at the table with him. He invites us to not take the crumbs, to sit that last supper. I will eat this with you again. In my Father's kingdom, all the dogs can come in because we're no longer righteous sons of the kingdom. These precious things should not be said to those who are proud. Only those can hear. And that's what Jesus is doing every time. Dear Father God, Lord, we ask that you would give us the humility to appreciate the gospel. That if we need anything more than the gospel, we do not understand the gospel. Dear Father God, we praise you that you have made us acceptable and that we may come into your holy temple and dine with you. Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that anyone here who has not humble themselves in the presence of the Lord. Father, I ask that you would give great grace now to give them an ability to lower themselves so that you might lift them up. Lord, as we close in this worship, and for all of our worship together as a church, let us be humble so that our praise will reach into the heavens. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.